I tend more to sit back and watch other people. That's what's made me appear to, except one among my own intimate friends. Then, obviously, one opens up, as, and we swap ideas and things. But, uh, so, consequently, Peter Ustinov, uh, one woman said to me, I have, I have heard that you are funnier than Peter Ustinov. She's a very famous French socialite. I said, who told you? She said, this man here told me. And I said, I, did, I, I first I've heard about it. He said, but you are funnier. You have, tell, him, tell, her, tell her a funny story, you naughty man. Oh, no, no. So I said, I don't know any funny stories. And she said, oh, I refuse to believe that. <laughs> now, what are you going to do? You're standing there. I mean, I wouldn't think of going up to somebody and saying, I hear you're a very good accountant. He'd say, yes, that is quite right, yes. <laughs> so would you do me a, a column of figures? And no, I couldn't really, no. Come on, please, a quick one. Oh, well. <laughs> what, um, I mean, you know, in running into a thousand, shall we say? Or <laughs> I say, it's not for me, it's for my sister. She, she uh, loves your figures. Oh, really? Yes, she collects all of them. She's seen all of your accounts. Oh, <laughs> what was your favourite account? Oh, I don't know. I had one, you know. I mean, you could take it from that. Sort of about the goon show and the goons themselves now uh, if you're a fan of peter sellers and the beatles uh, and if you're not then what business have you here this isn't the podcast for you uh, but if, if if you are uh, assuming you are then 1995 was a great year for uh, long-form documentaries about those two behemoths of popular culture find out why here uh, this week i'm joined by joe wisby uh, host of the wonderful Beatles Books podcast. Hello, Tyler. Thank you for having me. And how are you? Uh, fair to middling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Joe, <clears throat> you obviously, you know, you, you've created this wonderful podcast, the Beatles Books podcast. Anyone who hasn't heard it will be able to tell straight away what it's about. <laughs> um, essentially, uh, from what I understand, you became well, obsessed with books about the Beatles from quite an early age. Yeah, so I start, I'm 37 and I got into the Beatles around the anthology time in the mid-90s when I was um, about 10 or 11. Mm. And I always was, I was and still am an only child. So that sort of led me to reading a lot. So I always loved books and love reading. And so I tied in this love of the Beatles that I discovered in the mid-90s into books so I would shop around every time I came to buy a record by the Beatles I would often buy a book at the same time and since then since those heady early teen years uh, it's grown and grown and I'm now sitting on an incredibly unhealthy amount of Beatles books at home about 450 which is incredibly unhealthy and and, and I need to be locked away (laughs) somewhere. I seem to think that in the 70s, it was kind of a paucity of books about the Beatles because the Beatles were kind of considered a bit passe in the 70s up to a point. Yeah. And then and then John died and, and 
and that all changed. And then I, I, I would, I'm assuming that probably the, the vast majority of the books you've got are probably what published after 1990. Would that be right? Well, I think John's death is when the avalanche started. That is that's probably when from the early 80s yeah, okay. onwards, yeah. that's when they really kick off. And then Anthology gives it the second wind because around the time of Anthology, mm. you've also got Ian MacDonald's <laughs> Revolution in the Head, which is a, yes. a hugely yep. influential and, to my mind, really excellent book. And what that showed was that showed a new way of writing about the Beatles. So that inspired a lot of writers to write their books about the Beatles. So I think, yeah... You're right, after John's death. I mean, there were some through the 70s. There were some really important books through the 70s. And, of course, even in the 60s, you had Hunter Davies' authorised biography and Michael Brown's book, Love Me Do, that was based on their early tour. So mm. right from the start, you did have a literary side to the Beatles story. But, yeah, after John died, after those initial kind of quite embarrassing cash-in books that you often get when someone famous dies, then you've got things like Philip Norman's Shout!, May Pang's book, um, Peter Brown's book, The Love You Make, and these were all huge, huge sellers. Uh, so that obviously led on to, to publishers realizing that there was there was legs in this. So they decided to publish more books about the Beatles, many of which uh, now sat on my shelves. Revolution in the Head, I it's great, mm. but I, I take issue with one one thing in that book. Probably one of my, it's probably in my top five of Beatles songs of all time. Is I should have known better. Okay. And uh, Ian McDonald just calls it, you know, just a bit of disposable tat, essentially. <laughs> uh, I remember reading that and, and almost giving up on the book from that point. Um, yeah, I persevered. I mean, it is, that's the thing with that book is that he's not shy about expressing an opinion on, on all the songs. That, that That's kind of the nature of the book. But you're right, it is quite, it does get a bit grating when, when you love a song. I mean, I love Across the Universe. And he mm. really, he really oh, yeah. can't stand that song. Um, no. But that's that's what you get. But at the same time, when you love a song and he loves it, you get an immense amount of joy from the way that he writes about the songs. Absolutely, and, and I'm sure that you've probably been asked this dozens of times. But do you do you think you've got a Beatles book in you? If I had one, I probably would write about the making of the anthology project. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that would be really looking at the way the three of them kind of came together, the dynamic between them, how they made the film, how they made those two new songs, of course. I think there's a, a real story there that, that could be told. As I said, I was in my early teens then, so I've got a lot of affection for that whole project. Mm-hmm. For years, I toyed with... I had this idea... Everyone's got a novel, haven't yeah. they? That they yeah. were, right? <laughs> and this is, a, this is probably the worst idea in the world for a novel, but for, for years I entertained this idea of... Um, a counterfactual novel right? Uh, in which uh, Pete Best is hunting down the Beatles and murdering them one by one. <laughs> probably probably wise that you didn't pursue that one, but it's certainly an interesting angle. Yeah. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Joe, obviously, you know, uh, this is a podcast about uh, the Goon Show, but also, you know, we also examine the the, the individual, the Goons themselves, Sellers, uh, Seekham, Milligan and Benteen. Mm. Uh, before we get to the the subject for today, obviously, like you say, you're 37. You you, you probably I'm trying to think. Are you the youngest guest I've had on so far? I think you possibly are. Anyone's listening to this podcast will know what we're talking about today. But we are talking about Peter Sellers. But in terms of the Goon Show itself, did you have any sort of exposure to it when you were younger? Well, 
up to a point. So my dad, who is still a, a big Sellers fan like me, he was born in 1948. So he loved the Goons as a as a kid. So and he had I remember when I was probably about nine or ten, he had and you might be more familiar with this than me, just basic kind of BBC cassettes of certain Goons episodes and he used hmm. to play them in, in car journeys which I didn't really work for me he knew all the sketches really well so he could kind of not sketches he knew all the episodes really well so he could kind of sing along with a lot of what they were saying little 10 year old me on you know sitting in the back of a car with a not yeah. a fantastically good hi-fi system I couldn't quite pick up what what was going on but uh, so I was always aware of them because he was and still is um, a kind of medium-sized fan of them. Um, and that's what led on to my kind of interest and passion about Peter Sellers. Obviously talking about Sellers, today we're talking about the monumental three-part arena documentary from 1995, The Peter Sellers Story. Now, Joe, you, you were very keen to come and talk about this. And I, I was I must admit, I was, you know, I was delighted but at the same time, I was I was a little bit puzzled. I thought hmm, it's, a, it's an interesting choice. What <laughs> what was it that led you to suggest coming on to talk about this? Well, I first so I didn't watch this in 1995. Is the first thing I should say. So mm-hmm. you'll probably you'll probably be aware that they released in I think it was 2002 2001. They released an edited version of this documentary which was yeah. made up entirely of Sellers' home movies, which I I watched, I think it must have been on on a Saturday evening. And by this point, so in the, by about 2001, I'm about 17. So through my dad's love of the goons, I'm into Sellers to a certain degree. Uh, I loved the Pink Panther films. I loved Strange Love. Uh, but that was about the level. And, uh, and I was also aware of The Magic Christian because by this point, my Beatle Doom had overtaken me. So anything, any of Ringo's films yeah. I was aware of. Mm. So so I watched this documentary for the first time on that, that original kind of cut down version. And I was just, I was blown away by it. Because as you know, that version is entirely made up of just the home movie footage that Sellers himself, mostly of which he Sellers himself shot. It got, it got a DVD release, which I've still got here now which had a few nice extras on it had the the running jumping standing still film as an extra which which was mentioned to a, a quite a large degree in the built anthology film when they're talking about making hard days night they actually show you might remember they show a little clip of the running jumping standing still film and i found that really funny oh yeah so i started university in 2002 and then by this point, the internet is obviously and, and downloading and streaming sites are starting to become a thing. And I'd done some research and I realised that this hour and a half version of the Arena documentary, there was a three hour version. And not only was there a three hour version, but it was a three hour, hour version with talking with talking heads where you actually saw the, the interviewees and yeah. numerous other film clips that weren't featured in that proceed down version. And then probably about another year or two went past and I found, I can't remember where, but someone had down uploaded the full three-hour version in really good quality online. And I, I think it was in my final, my final year of university, which was 2005. 
And I, I just remember watching it on this little laptop that I used to have. And I, I watched, I started watching it about 10 o'clock on like a weekday evening. And I watched the whole thing. I just watched a full three hours. There's wow. something there's something about this documentary, which which obviously we'll, we'll talk about. But I just think it's, number one, I'm already fascinated by Sellers as an actor and as a, a human and as a goon. And this, I think, is obviously this tells his story, to my mind, just beautifully. It's so perfectly pitched in the way that it it completely recognises his talent. So it, it demonstrates, it shows through clips and through anecdotes the genius of this man and the things that he created, obviously, as a as an actor, as a radio personality, etc., etc., but it also mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't fully shy away from the darker side that we'll talk about I'm sure it perf- whereas some documentaries about sellers that we might mention go for one of either side so there'll just be a complete hatchet job that will destroy him and say he was an awful man etc cetera, etc cetera. or there'll be a kind of puff piece and they'll just say wasn't he lovely wasn't he wonderful made all these mm. Made all these films yeah. and then lived happily ever after. The the magic of this documentary for me is that it completely shows both sides of him. Yeah, you're right. It does absolutely, and it's not. Yeah, it's not too heavy handed. It's not. You know, it's not calling him history's greatest monster. Because hmm. I, I I watched this in 1995. Right. But I kind of then stopped obsessing about the goons and sellers and and the like. For, for you know a couple of decades really and, and right. sort of uh, I, was, I still was interested but I kind of had other things that I was focusing on so I, I hadn't re-watched it since then so you've you've re-watched it did you enjoy it okay actually no not did you enjoy it was it how you remembered it was it stronger or weaker or what impression did you get from re-watching it one of the problems I have with modern documentaries is that they will very often they, they're, they're sort of trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator a lot of the time. They're trying to sort of spoon feed information to to the audience. Hmm. They'll have too they'll have too many celebrity talking heads. Yeah. Um, if it's a historical documentary, very often the presenter will be front and center, possibly dressed in period costume as well. Yeah. Uh, it, it, very often the documentary is is more about the presenter than the actual subject, whereas Sellers was very much the subject. And there was very little in the way of um, editorialising or anything like that. I mean, there's very limited narration. Most of the narration is the interviews. And just thinking on my feet now from what you just said then, I think almost everyone that they interview, he knew or work with. I can't think of, yeah. they, they, they don't, oh, you know, the one of the criticisms to time with what you're saying of the recent Beatles eight days a week film. Yeah. Is yeah. they, they, they wheeled out people like Eddie Izzard and Richard Curtis. Now I love Eddie Izzard. I, I love Richard Curtis, but I'm not that interested in what they've got to say about the Beatles. Uh, no. And there were many people that are still around that, that knew the Beatles and could really comment on that film. The magic of this documentary and I think one of the really key things this documentary's got in its favour is when it was made. So I always think the best time to write a book or make a, a documentary about um, about anything, but particularly about like an individual, is about 15 to 25 years after either the event or that that person has died or, or maybe has, has stopped being successful. 
Um, mm. You get the documentaries that are made too far, too far in the future. I mean, you get into a stage now with Beatles documentaries where the talking heads aren't around so much now. Uh, and for, uh, for instance, a good, a good example of that book-wise is there's a really, really excellent book that came out about Britpop and Cool Britannia and the 90s called Don't Look Back in Anger by an author called Daniel Rachel. And now that you've had about 25 to 30 years that have gone past since Britpop and that kind of time, there's enough time for these people that were involved in it to reflect on it. There's a bit of hindsight to be had, but these people are still alive. They're still, you know, got all their wits about them so they can they can tell good stories, etc. And the thing about this documentary is it's only 15 years after he died. Most of the principals were still yeah. with us at that point. I mean, if you look at how many of the people that were in this documentary that are still alive now, you're probably looking at about 30, you know, 30 to 35%, I would say. Mm. An awful lot of people have died that are in this documentary. So those interviews are, are gone now. But almost everyone, yes. almost everyone that they interview... I, think, I can't think of anyone that they interview in it, top of my head, that didn't either know him or work with him. I don't think there was. No, mm. no. And you're absolutely right. Obviously, you've got Spike, you've got Harry, both gone now. He had no stage fright. He was not a man who'd stand in the wings like the rest of us, trembling before he went out there. He'd be completely calm. And uh, that was a feature of him that I found quite disturbing in a way because why should I be climbing up the wall he's just standing there not, not worried about it Peter would phone me up and say how's the script going and I said it's going like this there was a man I said I've got that down you've got sadly you've got Michael Sellers who's no longer around well that's another uh, story yeah absolutely the only person, the only person that they don't interview, talking headwise for this is Britt Eklund. So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, even though her daughter Victoria Sellers is in it, obviously, yeah. they don't get Britt. But they use she. I think she'd done the previous year. She'd done a Desert Island Discs, and they That's edit right. in the audio from that. Obviously, being a BBC production, they would have had access to that audio quite easily. So she still features in the film. So she's the only person. I think of them that's that were still alive at the time that, that that they don't speak to in this documentary. Yeah, and she she there's a great quote. She says, um, hmm. "If you're a genius, it's a license to behave badly." Which I thought she's. I, she, I thought you've said that before. That's not off the cuff. You've prepared <laughs> that. <laughs> but yeah, you mentioned Victoria. Um, yeah, having two having two famous parents. I mean, you know, with Michael and Sarah, they had their mum who who who's very. Um, seems you know the most sensible person in the world yeah. whereas um, Victoria she's got a father who's this world famous film star who's um, you know at the best of times a bit um, challenging yeah <laughs> and you've got a mother who of you know she appeared in a Bond film she was dating Rod Stewart in the 70s mm. Mm. Uh, so she Victoria must have had um, a real strange upbringing I mean she in this she's still so how old was she being this? She'd be like late 20s, early 30s when this was filmed. So she's, I mean, she, I think she comes across quite well. But I think the other, I think Michael and Sarah come across, and Anne, Anne, Anne. I mean, Anne's a tour de force in this, isn't she? I mean, she's she's elegant, she's erudite, she's intelligent. 
she just comes across so well, I think. Yes. I, I knew that, you know, I've read countless Sellers biographies over the years. And I knew that he'd basically gone to Anne and said, I think I'm in love with Sophia Loren. And and, and then after they split up, you know, he, 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 he would go back to Anne to introduce, you know, his succession of girlfriends, um, to, almost to get her approval. Mm. So she became a surrogate peg when when peg died yeah who, who by the way um there's there's a clip uh of sellers with his mum with peg and they're looking at i don't know why but they're examining silver candlesticks yeah weird uh, what a weird thing for them it's almost like an antique road show type situation but obviously years before that yeah was on TV. i think it, well yeah and it was i think it was harking back to i think she sort of had a line in um selling old Tut back in the back of the back of the thirties or whatever, um, but she there was a, there was you know she 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 was speaking in that clip, and I, I just thought she sounds exactly like Miriam Margulies. Yeah, she does um, actually. You're right. Yeah, that's true. Miriam Margulies played Peg Sellers in the uh, the film about Peter Sellers based on the Roger Lewis book. Yeah, uh, the documentary is is uh, three parts. It sort of it begins from you know Sellers birth pretty much right up to the point where he starts filming I'm all right Jack and I I think in some ways that's of the three that's possibly the most interesting well I was obviously from your perspective I thought as a goon kind of head that's that deals with the goons doesn't it how did you feel that that bit was covered yeah there, there was lovely footage of footage of spike sat during i guess one of the musical numbers on the during a goon show and he's looking a bit morose he's looking a bit subdued a bit cheesed off even Hmm. uh and then you see harry walk up with what i presume is a glass of brandy and milk (laughs) okay uh (laughs) and you can spike's face just lights up with delight i just thought oh that's lovely and i'd love to have known yeah. It just, it just, it, it, I'd love to have known what was going on in Spike's head at that p- precise moment. Um, I also wrote down, um, oh, it's kind of a bugbear with me. And, and I, they always use the what time is it Eccles sequence mm. as, as in, in documentaries. If, if there's a documentary about Sellers or Milligan or Seekin or the goons themselves, uh, you know, over the years, there's, there's been quite a number of TV documentaries and radio documentaries. And they'll always use the what time is it Eccles sketch or sequence yeah. with Blue Bottle and Eccles as a, as a way of kind of illustrating goon humor, goon logic. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think, you know, just it to me, it's become the Del Boy falling through the bar <laughs> of the goon show. <clears throat> no, so there's, there's plenty of other really good, there's, you know, there's dozens, hundreds of, Excellent, funny, amusing uh, goon show sequences that you know. I just sometimes wish occasionally use one of them guys. You know, don't just don't, don't be lazy. You know, don't just reach for the usual. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I suppose the one thing about that is this was made twenty five years or so ago. So maybe that 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 that's developed more since then. You do make a good point, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Um, interestingly as well and again i don't want to get you know racing ahead here but the third episode ends predictably with seller's funeral and uh and mm. you see 
Spike and Harry at the funeral. And then I think it's Spike. Spike gets the last word. He says, it's very touching. He says, you know, how he misses him so much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and then and then they finish the, the you know, as the, as the credits roll, it's, um, the music is uh, Blood Knocks Rock and Roll Call. Uh, which was a, a single, a B-side to the Ying Tong song, I think, okay. from from the from the fifties. Um, and speaking of music, the, the music is is excellent. Isn't well, it? I was just going to say it's so I I hunted down the music because you can get it on CD. Um, All right, uh, it's Andy Shepherd. That's the guy's name. So right. he does the. He's obviously a, a kind of saxophonist, and yeah, the music is just perfectly pitched so it's it's about 70 75 percent this kind of these different moods of of saxophone and then at certain points they use this kind of almost ambient type music yes. which mm. which i've never found which i've constantly kind of shazammed and tried to find out who did that or whether or not i can ever hear that because the even the music brings me such joy. I I, I it's I know it's unhealthy and strange, but so I, I hunted down this CD and this CD's got some, it's got about half of the music that's used in in the documentary. But yeah, it's just it's 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 got that lovely kind of sprightly nature to it when it's a happy and joyous moment, and it's got a kind of an angry kind of side to it when it's a difficult moment and it's got a sadness when there's a death etc etc but yeah i think it's just spectacularly perfectly pitched music yeah there's a there's the sequence there's some footage of sellers walking around almost looking aimless walking around um the hampstead flat that he moves into after he and Anne separate and it's there's this very melancholy music which is which is really very low and it's just, it's quite affecting. Yeah. I very rarely go and see my own films. Uh, once they're done, I, I hate to watch myself working. I found that the majority of comedians and humorists are, in the main, quite serious people. A, a typical example of that is Spike Milligan. I think that it's mainly the straight actors who've got all the jokes and the comics who just sit and stare. That's a sequence where... Oh, yeah. um, that's what that that's where uh, Brian Forbes, who was a great friend of Sellers, um, <clears throat> that's where Brian Forbes talked about him and Nanette, his Nanette Newman, his wife, going to um, Sellers' flat and holding his hand until he fell asleep. Yeah, and of course he also tells that story where he says um, Sellers came to Forbes and said, I, "I thought I should tell you that I'm in love with your wife, Nanette Newman." Of course, and yes. Forbes says. Okay, well, okay. What does Nanette think about this? And Sellers says, "Well, I haven't told her yet. I thought I'd start with you," which <laughs> yeah. is perfect comedy, perfect comedy. And then Forbes, perfectly pitched, says, "I mean, in many cases, I think Peter was uh, slightly mad, shall we say?" Yeah, I think. I mean, that uh, it's funny. There are there are enough funny kind of stories in there, but I think on the whole. It's probably, you're right, I think melancholy is the overwhelming mood of it, certainly from the kind of the 64 heart attack onwards. I think the first half of the documentary is is joyous and uh, you know, celebrates the talent and celebrates the, the building of this great actor's career from a radio star into a TV star, into a movie star, into the biggest movie star. 
in the world, maybe about you know if you think around Clouseau and Strange Love, he's he's certainly he's absolutely in the top draw, and that the obviously post that heart attack, I think that as his career kind of goes toward the the kind of nadir, and is then obviously resurrected by those later Panther films, but I think that the mood of the documentary and that music that we just talked about that that certainly changes. But yeah, there are there are some excellent funny stories and actually again jumping ahead something that i didn't know um until something that i've forgotten about until i, I rewatched this documentary for the 50th time when they're talking when they interview is it two cousins of sellers right, right yeah. at the beginning they and, and they're That's sat right. in this yeah. theater aren't they yeah and then that of course these two these cousins were at the funeral and they asked for and sellers wanted in the mood glenn miller to be played at, at, at his funeral and of course these one of these these cousins says that all they could play on, all they could find, was this tiny little kind of almost like a dictaphone. So they're playing, they're playing yeah. this music, aren't they? And of course, you've got uh, Brit and Lim Frederick, and obviously the children, understandably very upset at this moment. And apparently, as this thing was was piping out in a, a very poor way in the mood, Milligan and Seacombe were were side splittingly laughing, which I thought that added a real uh, a real light moment. Well, the thing about that is that Sellers had always joked to, to, to Milligan that he hated in the mood. Ah, um, right, okay. And, and I, I think he'd said, I can't remember what the line or the quote, or what he'd said to Spike exactly, but, you know, when I, when I die, Spike, I don't want bloody in the mood playing or something like that, you know, I think it right. was. So I think that, that, yeah, so you can imagine this tinny little reproduced sound of Glenn Miller um, mm. that would crack Spike up, of course. But, you know, on top of that, there's the, there's the knowledge that Sellers hated the song anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just quickly, just going back to Brian Forbes, actually. Yeah. So the shot, uh, in Shot in the Dark in 1964, Sel- uh, Clouseau turns up at this, this nudist colony and he meets this guy who's, uh, strumming a guitar which is strategically placed um, and he's not wearing any clothes uh, and it's Brian Forbes <laughs> and where do you think you're going? I do not think sir I know where I am going I am going to the recreation area not like that you're not what was that you said? I said you're not going to the recreation area like that I am Inspector Clouseau of the Sûreté Oh, how do you do? I'm Turk. I am here on official business, and I am looking for someone at the recreation area. Not unless you take off your clothes. You, sir, are under arrest. Arrest? What for? For making lewd and suggestive remarks to an official of the French government. Lewd and suggestive remarks? Also for indecent exposure. Doesn't anyone wear any clothes around here? No. What? This is a nudist colony. A nudist colony? Right. And nobody gets in unless they take their clothes off. What, uh, all of them? All of them. Right down to your moustache. The character is credited in the in the credits, but um, not as Brian Forbes. It's Turk Thrust. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Now, uh, Turk Thrust turns up in this documentary, doesn't he? He certainly does, yeah. Quite early on. And I, I think he's, he appears... In the is it in the first episode? Um, no, I got it. See, it was the third episode. Well, I think there was a clip of it in the first episode, yeah. and then the, yeah, that's what I'm thinking and then, of. and what was interesting as well, and I'd love to know 
the story behind this because you've got um, Sellers with a, a Beatles wig on. Yeah. Basically. Uh, and he is um, he is uh, Turk Thrust and his band is the Y-Fronts. <laughs> and he is uh, one of the, the leading exponents of the Stockport sound. <laughs> um, but what interests me was that it was Michael Benteen mock interviewing him. Was it really? Right. Okay. I wouldn't have known that necessarily. That's interesting. So when do you yeah. think that was filmed then? Was that kind of, well, that, that would have been 63, 64? Yeah. I'm probably inclined to say probably 60, late 63, early 64. Okay. Uh, and um, I'd just love to, I mean, I know that uh, Sellers and Benteen remain you know, friends. Um, I'm just, I'm guessing that, Benteen was visiting <laughs> Sellers and he just decided to do this. Sellers decided to do this little skit. But interestingly, you've then got one of the talking heads turns up and it's um, it's a former Beatle. Certainly is. Yeah. In, in, he sat in this Mr. Mr. George Harrison, we should say, for those that haven't seen it. And he's got George has got all this long hair and a beard and he looks around. Mm. He looks like he did during the anthology. So that, that obviously would yep. fit that kind of 94, 95. And I, th- I th- think he looks great. He looks healthy. He looks well. And yep. he tells some really, really interesting stories. The, the story, which is accompanied by a still picture of George Harrison, Ravi Shankar and Peter Sellers in Disneyland is quite the... I mean, there's, <laughs> a, there's a trio that you would certainly do a double take of if you were walking past heading out <laughs> heading out to the Magic Kingdom or something. Um that's interesting. And there's a really good clip where they show Sellers visits the Beatles during the filming of Help at Twickenham Studios in 1965. Yeah. And he presents him with a Grammy, doesn't he? And welcome to the great Twickenham Studios, uh, where the boys, the Beatle, are making their new film Help. And I am actually with the Beatle now. And to uh, present them with their Grandma Award which uh, uh, they uh, have won from America. After a while, I remember thinking, well, you know, we've met all these people, we've met all these film stars and presidents and queens and kings and, you know, we just about met everybody. But um, there was very few people who actually impressed me. (laughs) There are no more awards. It's an honour, to say the least. And it's nice to have a chance, really, isn't it? Itza Longwa. But yeah, I think it's interesting that Sellers obviously worked with Ringo and personality-wise you would think might be more Lennon in that kind of manic kind of headspace that they both had. But it's interesting that the, the friendship that Sellers forms with, with, a, with the, a Beatle was strongest with George. Yeah, but then you think about it, George was obviously a huge um, uh, fan of Python yeah, and became very good friends with, with them all, particularly Eric Idle. Mm. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, of the Beatles, he would probably be the one that would be maybe more, um, uh, have more affinity yeah, okay. with, with someone like Sellers. But yeah, so he, he presents it with this Grammy Award and he he, he calls it a Grandma yeah. Award, doesn't <laughs> yeah, he? A Grandma Award, and you yeah. can. You can see Lennon smirking, yeah. And they almost look, they almost look, um, because it would have, like you say, it's sixty-five. They almost look slightly, and maybe I'm imagining this, but they look slightly in awe 
of him. They almost look like slightly sort of naughty schoolboys. Yeah, sort of sat sat in a row as he's as he's presenting this thing. It's interesting because George makes the point that they both be the Beatles and Sellers. They more so Sellers because obviously Sellers is twenty. No, not 20, but a, a good kind of 10 years older than the Beatles and came to fame much earlier. But they both had that thing where they rub shoulders with the old-fashioned British show business elite. George, in the documentary, uses the example of Vera Lynn. But yeah. they both went way beyond that and moved into, uh, obviously, a, a different level of fame. They were they left Arthur Askey, etc., behind and they both became global superstars during the 60s so i think that's a, an interesting point that that george made obviously they you know the the beatles and sellers journey once they reached that level of fame were vastly different but i think that's a, a very a typically a typically perceptive piece of thinking by george uh, george was great if you mm. watch a lot of george interviews he 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 was always great at working people out I always find, and I get the feeling that he obviously, I, I, I think he sussed out sellers quite quickly. Yeah, absolutely. A very shrewd judge of character, I think, George. Yes. Uh, yes. Which, make, which which kind of begs the question, well, why did you agree to go with Alan Klein? You know? <laughs> well, but, I think uh, I think that might have been a majority vote. I think I think at that point, George was um, didn't have much faith in the Beatles anyway and was happy to just kind of sign with anyone. But yeah, you're right. That that's a bit of a that that that's a, a blot on the copybook of Mr. Harrison was was Alan mm, Klein. Mm. But yeah, it's lovely to see George, and it and it's clear that that George had a lot of affection and uh, friendship with Sellers. Um, it's interesting because of course Sellers dies six months before John. I always wonder whether because there's the John Lennon interview with Andy Peebles and he talks about 40 Towers in that interview. I don't know yeah. if you've ever heard that, but yes. Yes. he talks about mm-hmm. 40 Towers. I, I, I would I would love to have known, I would love that British comedy question to have gone a bit further. I would love to know whether John had any interest in the, the you know, the, the 70s Panther films. I can imagine him really liking being there, actually. I, I think John would have really, I mean, being there obviously is a magnificent piece of cinema anyway, but I would love to have known whether or not to kind of carry on that Beatle connection, whether or not John paid any attention to Sellers' 70s work. One of the outstanding interviews for me in that, again, you'll probably correct me, but I think it's in the first, it might be in the second episode, is Peter Hall, the theatre director. Obvious. And yeah. uh, someone else, obviously, who's not no longer with us. And he, the line that he says that really echoes with me, and that I think is a perfect summing up, really, of Sellers, is he says, it's not enough to have talent. You've got to have the talent to handle the talent. I mean, mm. and that could be said about cat. That could be said about countless other actors, singers, comedians, whatever. But what a perceptive line. I think that's a fantastic mm. interview. Uh, did you notice how often David Lodge was there? Was pop, popping up in these home movies or these movies that Sellers was was filming. Yeah, there there were people like that. I mean, uh, Graham Stark was someone that I thought because the, the friendship with Graham Stark is well known, but Stark appears a lot less than than David Lodge, doesn't mm. he? Yeah, <laughs> David Lodge seemed to be because Sellers moved. Sellers had as many homes as he, as he had cars, almost, it seems. You know, he seemed to be yeah. moving all the time. Um, 
so there's all these different there's all this footage of uh, there's this footage of a snowball fight yeah uh with dave large um there's not there wasn't that many glimpses of spike or harry was there it was very much graham and and david that's interesting actually outside of the i mean part of that i suppose would have been if he was abroad, you know, there was some footage of him on like boats and clearly in America, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, you're right. A lot of those mid sixties clips that we see Spike and Harry don't, don't appear. Um, I mean, the the thing we should say that the person that shocked me the most when I, I first saw it was princess Margaret appearing. Right at the beginning of the first episode, you've got um, this uh, fake film presentation um just looking at my yeah. notes here um it, it's called a knit picture uh the great yeah. burko uh and it's basically it's <laughs> sellers standing in front of these uh theatrical screens and he's he basically says he's he says he's going to uh, uh disappear behind the screens and uh emerge as someone completely different and sure enough he goes behind the screens you see lots of arms and bits of clothing sort of being draped over the top of the screens and then uh, princess margaret walks out and does a little bow and then um <laughs> quite unaccountably this pram i guess on on which with a piece of string tied to the end of it a, a pram sort of <laughs> gets pulled along the grass and into a lake yeah, that's completely surreal. I mean, it's very, yeah. very Python. I thought that actually, it's, and and it, it even they've dubbed over like a comedy explosion noise, haven't they? When the pram hits the the water, I think. But yeah, incre- yes. incredibly strange. The, the apropos of nothing, this pram just, just is, as you say is is tugged into the into the water. But I mean, that's something that really hits me is in a lot of that home movie footage is the people that you see is that you'll see a Princess Margaret. Obviously, he goes to visit Sophia Loren when she's filming in... Is it in Italy when she's filming that, that big epic film? And there's... You know, there's uh, and there she is sat in her in her chair, and obviously that still is filming her from afar, from a sl- maybe a slightly creepy way. Now we might think, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, some of the people that that he that appear in this film in not in interview sense, but in that kind of home movie sense is yeah is is remarkable. Yeah, well, just I mean, this is not nothing to do with documentary. I was looking for you know, like like you do or like I do. I was looking for pictures of Peter Sellers. Uh, a couple of weeks ago okay online and i don't know what i must have what put must have put in peter sellers and i don't know bowie just to see if there were any pictures of yeah bowie with peter sellers and sure enough there was okay. a picture of of sellers with bowie and it was bowie during his thin white duke period so what's that the 75 yeah 76 something like that um, and ronnie woods there as well <laughs> There's another one. There's that. There's that. I think the Terry O'Neill pictures where he's sellers is by a pool. Maybe his pool. I don't know. With Roger Moore, um, and it's it's when Moore was Bond. It looks about. I mean, Moore looked old anyway in a lot of the Bond films. But it, it, yeah. I think he he looks relatively. You know, he still looks realistic as Bond. And they're doing this kind of fake kung fu. Uh, but it, it, it's it, you're right. It's it's crazy when you Google. Obviously, the amount of Beatles pictures that were taken over the years is is fat hundreds of thousands if you include the solo years so i'll often stumble across a picture of 
Paul McCartney and like Wayne Sleep or something, just a random pairing of people. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's when you, like you say, the 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 people that Sellers mix with, and some of which are in this film, is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Um, and there's that other that other strange bit when they go back to one of Sellers' houses and they interview the couple that own it owned it then. This kind of oh, yes. quite prim and proper, quite yeah. quite pleasant couple. Yeah. Uh, and they say, and of course they tell that they tell that story that he went back to that house, which I think was one of his sixties houses. He went back there in, I'm guessing, the mid to late seventies, and just asked if he'd like to, if if possible, if he could walk around the grounds. And we were entertaining some friends in the garden quietly, and something made me walk back to the house. I don't know why, what it was, but as I walked towards the house, I noticed someone standing just inside our front gates quite still, and even at quite a distance, I realised who it was, Peter Sellers. Um, the the man, the, the kind of man of the house that owned it was being interviewed, quite tacitly said that Sellers was with a female companion, which I yes. thought was quite nicely put. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, how... Well, he, he was quite, always... Quite strange, Sellers, really. Sellers was always... Well, no, not always, but I think towards the end of his life, or maybe the last decade of his life, particularly he seemed to be harking back and looking back and thinking back mm. to happier times if you like yeah um so he would he would um like Anne, his his first wife he'd take her to drive past old schools that he'd attended uh and and like yeah. you say he'd, he'd go back to old houses uh that you know that he'd lived in and he was always he was always going on about the goon show in terms of being the happiest time of his life professionally yeah absolutely uh, yeah because he, he talks about happiness doesn't he there's a again they they overlay the audio perfectly there's a scene where in what looks to be the mid 70s early mid 70s sellers is driving down this highway obviously in america in this car and someone's filming him in the back of this car on a, what looks like a, a scorching hot day a world away from the world that the first part of the film had painted of that of you know small kind of town England, uh, mm-hmm. him and his first wife, and they and they overplay this dialogue or this this interview rather of Sellers talking about that trying to recapture happiness and that you you don't you don't know what happiness is until it until it's gone you know you because you're existing in that moment of it and you just get that feeling that. Yeah, really since the divorce with Brit, maybe, for that last kind of 10 years or so, that he was always trying to find that that happiness kind of drug again. Uh, and despite all the riches and all the, you know, all the, the material wealth that he had, etc., he, he couldn't quite recapture that. There's also, yeah, there's interesting in the first episode, they interview, they managed to find one of his early girlfriends, um, a, l- a lady called Hilda. And... She's obviously talking about, again, the thing with, with Peter Sellers is that he would, you know, any romance that he was in, he would throw himself right into it, um, fully committed. And I think, you know, he didn't he want to marry her? And she said no, you know. And there's that, that, that other bit when they speak to Elkie Summer, who is, she's the, the lean lady in The Shot in the Dark, isn't she? She is, yeah. And he says, and she tells his story where, he she he just asked her to marry him. 
after mm. about two weeks or so. And she says to him, well, but I don't love you. And so there's just this, but, but it'll come, it'll come. Yeah. I, I mean, a fascinating, fascinating. Well, any, any psychiatrist would say that that's, he, he has mother issues, uh, which yeah. is um, an understatement. Because uh, Peg hated, um, well, she didn't hate Anne, his first wife, but she was, I don't think anyone was good enough for her little Peter. She called Britt Eklund a bleeding Nazi. Didn't she? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, not, 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 not the best uh, way no. to uh, endear yourself to your daughter-in-law. Um, no. Throughout the, the three episodes, they kept um, showing these clips of Sellers in 1964 on the Steve Allen show in, in the US. Um, and I, yeah. I, was quite, I was interested in that. I thought, like, okay, yeah. Because there was a number of clips from that. And... And the first clip I saw, I remember thinking, and I wrote this down, Sellers looks very subdued. Sellers looks mm. like he, I was thinking, is he, because you know, Sellers had um, very bad days where he would sort of, um, the black dog would come upon him and, you know, he, he would lock himself yes. away. Uh, yes. And I was thinking, is, 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 he, is he having one of those days, but he had to do this interview? And I was, one, you know, I was thinking, I wonder if that's it. But we find mm. out that... Um, so that goes out on uh, one evening in 1964. I can't remember the date. Um, the following morning, he has all those heart attacks. Um, yeah. So clearly, he was feeling not. Clearly, he was feeling unwell at that point. Um, yeah. But you're right. I've never thought about that. I, I know the interview. I mean, to be fair, even though he's subdued, he's still an engaging and funny guest on that on the clips that they show. But yeah, you're right. He's clearly not at full pelt in that interview and yeah i mean it, that adds an extra kind of tinge of sadness to it already when you did the character of dr strangelove you did that of course in a german accent well Can i'll tell you something about that right. uh, i was stuck you see because i didn't want to do just a, a sort of a, a normal sort of english broken german accent thing mm -hmm. so on the set was a little photographer from new york who was a very cute little fellow called ouija you must have oh, probably yes. heard of him mm -hmm. And he had a little voice like this, used to walk around a set talking like this most of the time. <laughs> he used to go and, and say, I'm looking for a girl with a beautiful body and a sick mind. <laughs> and I got an idea, I was really stuck with this, and I thought, you know, well, Ouija used to get all this stuff, everything, he used to have great big and larger lenses on the front of the camera, mm -hmm. and a cloth over his head, and he'd just get ready to do it, and Stanley would say, not now, Ouija, he'd say, okay, and move it all away, you see? <laughs> So I thought, if I put a German accent on top of that, you see, Werner suddenly got the thing, you know, there that's going up here and saying that, uh, and so I got into Dr. Strangelove. So really, it's Ouija. I don't know if he knows it, but uh, it's yeah. Ouija. Well, he does now. There's also, you have Morris Woodruff. Oh, uh, what a great it, section that is, yeah. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, he was a snake oil salesman, wasn't he? He was a chancer. Um, but it was quite revealing that he would phone uh, Sellers' agent, Dennis Salinger, and ask him what he wanted him to advise Sellers to do in terms of what film project should I tell Peter he should do. Remarkable, really. Because <laughs> Ian, Ian Carmichael appears, isn't he? Ian Carmichael says that, I think, I think Ian Carmichael lived... Did he live near Woodruff or I can't remember or Sellers? But he said I would always see I would always see the car parked outside. Yes. <laughs> so he knew that Sellers was there visiting him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, another hero of this is the staff. 
um, some of the people that work for him. Mm. And of course, the great Bert appears, who was his kind of his man Friday, wasn't he, for a long yes. time up until yeah. up until the end. And of course, the little section where he's wandering around. I don't know how they did it, but because he's wandering around the flat, isn't he, in London, that's clearly empty. I don't know mm. if they went in there. I don't know if they it happened to be up for sale when they were filming the documentary. Maybe it was. Or whether Possibly. or not they just or they just cleared away the the owner's items. But yeah, he's wandering around that that flat, which obviously he'd been to a thousand times before when it was alive and full of people. Uh, and now it's empty. And he's reminiscing on the the quite savage way that sellers dispense with Bert's services in about 77, 78, wasn't it, I think? Because sellers around that time was was dispensing with a lot of people in his life. And, right. and this right. sort of coincided with uh, Lynn Frederick uh, getting a feet under the table, as they say. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think he'd been with, uh, Bert had been with sellers, what, from 61 to 77? So that was 16 yeah. years. It's a long time. And I mean, he appears throughout the documentary. He he tells that, that great story where he's on the honeymoon for Sellers' marriage to Miranda Quarry. When oh, yeah. mm. they're on the honeymoon and Sellers says to him, oh, I'm, I, don't, I, I don't really fancy this. <laughs> and, yeah. just, and just bolts and leaves Bert and Miranda on this boat somewhere. I'm not sure where it is. Uh, and, and Sellers has just scarpered and gone gone to shore to so just you can't he, or even on the honeymoon he decided that the marriage wasn't for him and then well joe mcgrath talks about uh, casino royale which was obviously a very unhappy production yeah and it talks about sellers just disappearing for three weeks i mean i one of my other great passions alongside sellers and, and the beatles is bond so i have a big interest in i, I mean i love the casino royale film is a, that's a fascinating story anyway um so i love the the section with joe mcgrath joe mcgrath who of course also directed some of the beatles promo films just just to slide in a beatles reference there um, <laughs> yes but, uh, but 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 joe mcgrath the fantastic story that that sellers says to joe mcgrath I won't be in shot with Orson. So that initially obviously provides some quite difficult, you know, some heavy difficulties. And then when Sellers, as you say, Sellers scarpers and can't bear the production anymore. Uh, and Orson w- would appear every morning, look at Joe McGrath, realise that Sellers isn't there again <laughs> and says, where's our thin friend, Joel? Which I, I just, I find that so funny. <laughs> if I remember correctly, Sellers was so excited initially with the idea of working with Orson Welles. And then that soured very quickly. Yeah. Um, through no fault of Orson Welles, I don't think. I think it was just Peter just imagining stuff, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and of course, there's also McGrath was that great story where he, he's having a fight with Sellers. They actually, they come to blows, don't they? I mean, a remarkable thing to happen. And of course, uh, McGrath says that the, was it a bodyguard or security or st- a stuntman, a stuntman, Obviously, right. a quite heavy set stuntman uh, notices the fight and splits them up and says, "I don't know who to hit first. I love you both," <laughs> which ends in a ends in a big laugh and a big smile. And Sellers says, "I'm gonna I'm popping down. You know, I'm gonna go to the loo or something," and disappears for three weeks. Yeah, <laughs> I was really struck by uh, Mel Brooks. He turns up in um, yeah the third episode because uh, I I wasn't aware. Um, I wasn't aware until recently that he had tried to 
enlist sellers. You tried to uh, cast sellers in the producers yeah. in the um, uh, Zero Mistel role. And yeah. he, was, he tells a story of he's basically trying to sort of pitch the movie to sellers. And Sellers is kind of, yeah, yeah, okay, mm, sounds interesting. But, you know, much more interested in walking around some department store looking at shirts and ties and whatnot. Yes, uh, yes. And, and Mel, the way Mel Brooks tells it, you know, there wasn't any real sort of buy-in from Sellers. And then and then Mel Brooks sort of keeps chasing his agent and then his agent eventually says, no, Peter's not really interested. Um, uh, but what you know the, the irony of that is that obviously as you know um after the producers comes out and is a you know a moderate success um it's it, its biggest champion is peter sellers and he is he is going everywhere he, he's taking out uh, full page ads in tr- trade magazines uh extolling the virtues of mm. the producers and saying it's a masterpiece he's turning up on parkinson quoting lines from it you know uh and it just it just staggers me to think that he had, he because could you imagine the producers with peter sellers and gene wilder working together that would have been i mean it would have uh, been uh, it would have been fascinating i mean it, it's a career of missed opportunities in a way sellers it, it post about post kind of 66 67 there yes. are some other, there are some other opportunities that come up that he doesn't take advantage of or that don't kind of fall into his lap but that's probably the biggest mm. uh there's there's an, an interview where Peter Sellers, um, I think he's asked by the interviewer something along the lines of, you know, would you like to play a romantic lead or something like that? Yeah. And and he says, um, he says, no, he, he prefers to play non-romantic roles. He, he, he'll leave that to the handsome brigade. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fantastic line, that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But then, but then he kind of in the, I mean, I'm not sure when that interview was from, but sort of late 60s early 70s he i mean there's a girl on my soup yeah it's pretty much him trying to do a play a romantic lead well i mean uh, also in casino royale he's true, basically yeah. trying to be bond which is mm. you know the great romantic lead where he can just have any woman that he wants i'm just looking at my notes here because i've got so many notes yeah uh, cool. i've written i've written down here talking about sophia loren you've got spike being dragged along to rome by peter sellers to ostensibly to see Carlo Ponti, uh, Sophia's husband. That was the excuse that Peter gave. But obviously, yeah, he wanted to go and uh, uh, pervert Sophia, really, didn't he? Like, <laughs> essentially, yeah. Essentially. Uh, but Spike being Spike. Um, Spike always in interviews. Towards the end of his life, anyway, or as, as, he was a, as he became an older man, he would always talk about how when he was younger, he was a handsome man. He was beautiful. He was, you know, how, and he was, he was a good looking guy, Spike Milligan back in the Yeah, day. he was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he talks about how uh, during a meal with Sophia Loren uh, and Peter and her husband, um, Spike says that Sophia Loren squeezed his leg under the table. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I first heard that, I, I didn't know if that was a joke. Or if that was actually if that was him kind of weaving a surreal kind of story, uh, but I, I I think I think she did. Um, it, I don't know whether or not what she meant by that. If that was just an affectionate tap, possibly. Yeah, who I think knows? It would, have been, it would have been. And and the whole Sophia Loren thing with Peter Sellers is intriguing. Uh, I know he was really really upset because she wrote a autobiography. Right, um, possibly in probably in the seventies. Not sure. It was certainly before he died because he got upset by it. Um, because right. 
he wasn't mentioned at all. Wow. You'd have thought there'd be at least a mention of him. Yeah, I wonder why she didn't. Mm. Um, Dave Lodge talks about Sophia Loren turning up for a meal or a soiree at one of the sellers' homes in the early 60s. And he's talking talking about she's wearing this kind of outfit, which is basically made up of two scarves sort of draped across her. Yeah. (laughs) And he's just, he's there, and you can see Dave Lodge, you know, with a little twinkle in his eyes, talking about, you know. Anyway, he brought her down to the house, and she sat opposite. I can even remember what she wore. She had, I'd never seen it so cleverly done. She was a very well-built lady, as we all know. And she managed to have, like, two different coloured scarves, crossways, with bare shoulders, and tied with a big bow at the back. And when you're looking at a lady like that, I mean, it's very difficult not to keep dropping your eyes and imagine how it's all... Happening, you know. <laughs> I mean, I don't imagine that. I mean, for someone like Dave Lodge and that had lived his life in this country, I imagine being in a room with someone as incredibly beautiful as Sophia Loren must have been quite the eye opener. Let alone when mm. she was wearing outfits like that. So I, yeah. I can understand his his awe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the the you know this arena, this three part arena documentary is is <clears throat> thoroughly absorbing. Um, Highly recommended. It is available to watch uh, online in in pretty good quality. Uh, if you want to seek it out, I would recommend that people do that and um, cancel all your plans for the weekend. Uh, Joe, I mean, in terms of uh, your your podcast, what's your plan? Is it? Um, do you hope to cover at some point every single book ever written about the Beatles? I, I think that would be um, that would be quite difficult. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think what I'll probably do going forward is. I don't know because at the moment I do them for every two weeks. So as we go into next year, I'll probably reduce them to monthly, and so they'll become more centered around new and kind of current Beatles books. Because as we know, there's no sign in the book, the books, any let up in the books being published. So uh, what I kind of started out to do was to go back and speak to people about maybe some older books alongside something else that I've done a few times. I've done it with. Andy Miller uh, from the Batlisted podcast. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John Mitchison also from the Batlisted podcast, where they talk about kind of classic Beatles books where either the author's passed away or isn't available. So I've done um, episodes on the, the Hunter Davies book, the Beatles anthology book. So I, I might move into that area of talking to, uh, yeah, broadcasters, etc., about their favourite Beatles book alongside speaking to the actual authors. Oh, great. Joe, listen, thank you so much for, for joining me today, and it's been great. Uh, maybe come back sometime in the future and talk about The Magic Christian. How about that? Why not? Thank you for asking me on. I, I love talking about this documentary, and I, I definitely don't need an excuse to watch it again, so thank you for the opportunity. Thanks again to Joe. Uh, usual blather. Uh, please follow on Twitter at Pod. Please rate and review. Usual drill. Uh, and I'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.